0: From the European Broadcasting Union in Geneva, I'm Emilio San Pedro, and this is the Eurovision News Podcast. In this episode, I sit down with Angela Stengel of ABC Australia. Angela is head of ABC's Innovation Lab team, which is part of the company's strategy division. They are a team of journalists, producers, engineers, designers, strategists who are looking one to two years into the future at what opportunities or challenges lie ahead. How can they partner with content and technology teams in ways that can then inform their business planning and strategy? Their current focus is attracting younger audiences, as well as the role that algorithms and AI are going to play in our future. So Angela, welcome, thanks for joining us. Ahead of talking to you, I was thinking, you know, this is the great holy grail of uh, all the public service media that we represent at the EBU, is how to reach younger audiences. They know for example once a year when there's the eurovision song contest channels like bbc one in in the uk or uh radio television espanola's tve channel one in spain will have their highest audience of teenagers or people under 21 22 for the entire year that will be the one day when they'll hit uh that target audience on what were traditionally the main channels on TV, sort of like the one that everyone used to tune into. So once a year, twice a year, depending what they've got on, something like the song contest, they can, they can expect a big audience. But what do they need to do the rest of the year is the question, to bring in younger audiences so that you know these, you know, traditional and very important public service media operations managed to remain relevant.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, firstly, it's so good to be here. Thank you for for having me on, and it, it's such an important question and one that it, it's been on my mind for many years because it, younger audiences are so important, not just for public service media, but I think for all established media because. Their media habits are going to be everyone's media habits soon. Like, and if, if to define younger audiences, I mean, often in my team at Innovation Lab at ABC, we focus on reaching 18 to 30 year olds. Um, in certain parts of the media, under 50 can be considered younger, but we try to go a, a bit younger than that, 18 to 30. Um, and if you look at the the generations, you know, Gen Z and and millennials. The oldest millennials are 40 now, 41, you know, people born sort of 1981 onwards. So they are becoming what will be the mainstream audience. And I know, you know, years ago at the ABC we used to think that, um, you know, people come to us when they're children, um, they get busy, you know, having careers, uh, having families, and then they come back to us when they're older. But media fragmentation is... The reason that their behaviours are not, we can't rely on that anymore. You know, behaviours have just changed sort of so dramatically. Um, as to what people need to do about it, I mean, what what we do in Innovation Lab is we talk a lot to that audience, try to understand their behaviours, try to think about it as, you know, you're trying to build a relationship here, um, a, a friendship, You're you're not you can't just come at it from a i've got all this really important and fantastic content how do i make them want it what do they actually want there's so much content out there in the world there's so much choice you can find your people on all sorts of corners of the internet so why what what's the value for the audience in in your content when there's so much choice
0: and that's the thing with a lot of our members at the EBU is that they were the for decades, the dominant channel was theirs, both on television and radio in many cases. It was where people came to, even when many of them then transitioned to the first steps of digital and websites and live pages and all of that. It was still a natural thing for them to do to become kind of a dominant place for people to go for news and for information. I think that's still the case for many of them. But when it comes to drawing audiences for entertainment, for um, uh, documentaries, for everything that's not, uh, you know, sort of like breaking news or a live big event, that's where the challenge often lies. It's because, as you say, it's so fragmented now. The choices are, it's almost like because we have so many choices, these channels that existed in a world where, they could pretty much dominate. I mean, I remember when I was in, uh, at uni a long time ago in the US, they used to talk about the least objectionable program. So that was the theory of broadcasting at the time was that people would watch the least objectionable program. So that meant they're going to watch TV from about eight to 11. And what they're going to watch is the least objectionable because they're going to turn it on to about three channels. And they're going to have to decide. Or ten channels, and they're going to have to decide between them. That's that world's over.
1: I've never heard that, that yes, term before, that but I theory. love it. <laughs> that was the theory. not the least. Least of obje- yeah, yeah. It's like wow, what a bar to aim for. What a, what I, a great <laughs> way. To, what a
0: bar, right? <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah, and, the, and you know, coming from Australia, and I grew up with you know, five. TV stations to to choose from, and you know not that many radio stations either. So yeah, the 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 bar is actually set quite low. So in some ways, I mean, you can you can see the positive side of where we are now with having so much choice that the content quality needs to be really valuable to that particular audience member, really um, focused in on on them and their needs in some ways. You know, we know that personalized platforms, whether it's Netflix or or TikTok, resonate with audiences because from the masses and masses of content they can find the thing that works for them. And, and that's the opposite of a broadcast mentality in, in some ways, because we, for, for decades our organizations have been trying to make content that will appeal to the broadest possible audience. So how do you kind of flip that? And um, I mean, what one one case study that I can maybe refer to that could be useful here is a, f- a few years back, my team set up uh, an Instagram account called ABC Queer. So specifically for LGBTQI plus young audience members. So started out by doing research, um, looking at how we could appeal to 18 to 24 year olds we were looking at there. Um, knowing that they were finding their subculture online. So who was their community? Um, What subcultures or what communities presented a gap in the market and one that the ABC could have a role in supporting? And I guess I want to use this example because what we found is that across all of our broadcast content, you know, we've got at the ABC four TV networks, um, a handful of national radio networks, localised radio networks, as well as uh, a news site and and plenty of other on demand. There were plenty of stories going out on broadcast that were on the topic that would resonate with this audience. Um, issues for the queer community. So what we did was cre- we created a platform where discovery was made more easy. Um, they might not want to tune in to our. 24-7 news channel, but hey, there's that three-minute interview that's actually relevant for them. How can we repackage it for them? Um, how can we also develop some content formats specifically for the platform for Instagram um, that, that's new content made for that platform that that works for that audience? So there are pathways through, but um, there's no silver bullet with reaching younger audiences.
0: So the, the content may already be there, in a sense, is what you're saying. It's about saying, hey, we're here, (laughs) look at it. Yeah,
1: Yeah. how do you package it up and distribute it in a way that that gets the attention of the audience? And and I guess I should say with with this particular example, I remember when it was first being started up as a a pilot and – Yeah, being led by a guy called Omar Samad in my team and um, Mon Shafter was the editorial lead and and I kept asking questions about are there ways we can sort of automate more of this finding of content through, you know, metadata? How do we, how can we kind of, how could we generate more subculture verticals at scale? And they eventually got across to me that what made this platform work was that they'd created a community there. They'd created a trusted community. They were getting back to comments. They were moderating. They were making it a space that was a good space to be in. Um, And that doesn't necessarily scale, but then I guess it's sort of a how do you trade off a, a million viewers for one evening here versus a community of 50,000 people who really love what you do. And and perhaps that's something we need to do in, in established media or, or public service media. How do we put a value on, on what we're trying to do for our audience? Um, and perhaps traditional me- measures of big reach numbers alone can't be it.
0: Right. And, and does that audience that goes to that specific niche uh, site that we're talking about, does it then get led back to to the sort of main channels, as it were?
1: Yeah, a, a great question and one that we, we've we talked about a lot over the the years at the ABC. Uh, the, the short answer is it's not directly about bringing them back to our platforms. And I think if you specifically go into trying to reach young audiences on social platforms with the goal of bringing them to your own, you, you've got the wrong... Agenda, like how do you create a good experience and, and tell good stories for audiences where they want to be? Um, once you've established that, then yeah, you can think about bringing those audiences onto your own platforms. And for this example with ABC Queer, I mean, that was set up a few years ago. Um, that that whole area of, of content and the community dr- driving it at the ABC, we've got a really strong um, staff led group called ABC Pride has meant that we... You may have heard of an event called the Sydney Mardi Gras. I think it does get some pretty big coverage around the world. Um, World Pride also came to Sydney for the first time ever this year and ABC had the rights to it. So when ABC Queer launched a few years ago, you know, there were detractors. There were people saying, oh, this feels a bit risky. Do we want to do this particular thing for young audiences? Uh, But it was important to sort of fight through. And now a few years later we've got that solid audience of young people and we can tell them, hey, we've got the live coverage of Mardi Gras on our iView platform. We're covering World Pride. You know, read about it here, watch it here. And then it's a complete offering and it's, you know, I guess it's authentically an offering that that would work for the audience and it's not just about click-throughs.
0: You've done a a lot of work on podcasts and... I know you're quite, um, well, we're ha- happy to have you on our podcast, obviously, but I know you're, you know, you're really keen on, on helping uh, identify or helping people identify what is their raison d'etre, you know, the reason for existing on this podcast, because nowadays, there's just so many of them, aren't there, all of a sudden, I can remember just some years back, not very long, and it wasn't like that, but the markets really blossomed into this huge area, this huge space of choice. So how does one uh, launch a podcast that gets heard?
1: Uh, yeah, there are so many podcasts now, so much competition. I mean, but that's also a good thing. Like, nobody ever says there are so many books, there's too many books, or, there's too many movies. <laughs> but, <True. laughs> so I, I think that, you know, some years ago, there were too many, because they were podcasts that started and went forever. Whereas now, because there are so many, you know, short-run podcasts, it can be more like a book or a movie, and it's a fantastic hit of um, one story or one narrative. And then, you know, you can pick up the next one and, and move along. Um, again, I think it, it's about sort of the niche content, isn't it? And finding your audience and doing one thing really well for that particular audience. Um, in my team in Innovation Lab where, I mean, it's very early on, but we're just starting a new project around Gen Z audio innovation. And I guess what I'm interested in here is how are are young people, you know, under 30s consuming podcasts? If you think about, you know, at the lower end of Gen Z, um, they – they mostly don't know a world without Spotify or without podcasts. So how are they discovering their on-demand audio world? And what, what we're doing with this Gen Z Audio Innovation Project is we're starting by putting the decision-making power in the hands of the Gen Z audio makers in the organisation. So coming up next month, we're running a boot camp with a few days where these people can start workshopping their ideas into um, a podcast and from there they'll learn how to pitch it they'll pitch it hopefully we'll commission something through the youth network and I'm really hoping we'll we'll get some ideas that Help change up the format again. I mean, when you think back to, you know, I think everyone who's been in, in podcasting for a while remembers when Serial came out, that and how massive it was that there was narrative that went across episodes. Like, you know, that's not a tech innovation. That was a storytelling innovation, I suppose.
0: I worked, before I came here, I worked on a, a very bizarre podcast in a way because it's extremely successful at the BBC World Service, but it's not... A podcast in the way we're describing. So it's called the Global News Podcast, and it's really like almost a slightly podcasty version of our news programs that we made at the BBC and that they make at the BBC World Service. The difference being the way you treat it and the way you present it to the audience, and rather than a radio news bulletin, that was the only difference, maybe a bit of the atmosphere, the music used uh, for the sig tune, for the theme, that kind of thing. Uh, But what I found really interesting in that process was first of all, how popular it was because it was really taking the best content from the BBC World Service in the course of the day and putting it onto a podcast twice a day. And it just drew huge numbers and draws huge numbers of young listeners. Um, to what is effectively the same content that would have been on the BBC World Service. The the nuts and bolts of that content is the same. Uh, the report from uh, Moscow, let's say, uh, with the visit of the Chinese president or something, but just the treatment being slightly different and you going to where those younger audiences are seemed to be a gold We used to get so many emails from people uh 20-year-olds 21-year-olds saying i'm learning so much around about the world i'm you know they weren't traditional bbc world service listeners they were 20-year-olds that listened at the gym or they told you all about when they listened when they were out for a run when they were going to work when they were doing this and they would they needed to write in and they needed to tell us all about it to the point that we then started responding to them as well it, it's become a a thing in that podcast uh that really struck me as a strange uh, but very successful formula because it was taking the traditional part of a news operation, but somehow just turning it slightly around.
1: Uh, I'm I'm so glad you used that example because now I want to jump in and say. So I was listening to that podcast this morning. <laughs> not that I'd not that I'd sort of put myself in the younger end of that demographic, but now I want to tell you why I listened to it. I wasn't outrunning, but um, I so I think. It, being in, you know, a French-speaking country at the moment, I wanted some news and I put on the TV in the hotel room last night and it was in French. I don't speak French. And this morning I'm like, well, I want to stay up. There, was, I could see there was um, a news story happening in France. I couldn't quite follow it. And so I wanted a podcast that would connect me to where I was in the region. And so I searched for, you know, BBC World News, came up with it, listened through and and certainly had a passing thought of, why don't I listen to this all the time? I want to be connected to the world news, not just Australian news. So, yeah, it, it's when you, when you think about it, it's high quality content. It's doing something that you can't get anywhere else. And... when it's on the platform that the audience is looking for that content, it's performing a good service, right? Like I wouldn't have known how to listen to live radio. Like I probably would have needed to download a new app. Who knows how to find a radio in a hotel room. Um, But podcasting is an app that I go to all the time. So where is your audience spending all their time? How do you create an offer that doesn't stand out in that ecosystem, that makes sense in that ecosystem?
0: You know, it's not like it's, whistles and bells trying to attract, hey, young people, here we are. It's not that kind of, it's sort of just doing what it does, but it works because it perhaps simple, I I don't know. Yeah,
1: and I think that we, you know, in in media organisations that have been around for, you know, decades, how do we lean into our legacy? How do we lean into the fact that we're trusted organisations? We've got decades of experience and respect. Like, let's not shy away from that. Um, we don't need to throw that out to, I think, reach a young audience. Um, and it's exactly as you say, like, you know, those tweaks are all that it needed. And I think that, you know, what, what some of our research has shown when we've had, um, you know, qual research in really quick turnaround ways with younger audiences is that they're so good at uh, sniffing out something that's fake. They've grown up using the web all all their lives, they're used to verifying information across multiple sources. They trust nothing. They don't believe established authority. They trust their friends. They trust talent. So when you kind of think of the mindset that they're in, they're not stupid. Um, they're going to sniff you out if you're not being who you authentically are on a platform, if you don't understand that platform sort of intuitively. So I, I think the push is then on for media organisations to – genuinely be on certain platforms so I guess you know we've just been talking about podcasting here and podcasting you know for for say that BBC example and that's a format that I think we've all you know known so well because you know podcasting's been around since what I remember discovering it in 2005 or whatever Mm -hmm. yes that's a pretty slow burn whereas if you look at something like TikTok how can you genuinely understand it you know, enjoy it, you know, respect what's happening there. Um, and if you can't do it, then give it to somebody in your team who does. Give them the autonomy, give them the decision-making power to make good decisions on the behalf of your program or, or your brand to genuinely bring your, you know, trusted brand, your, uh, you know, well-researched information, bring that to the audience in a way that makes sense for both the platform and, and the program.
0: And really, as you were saying, make your newsroom like the audience you're trying to reach a bit more.
1: Yeah, yeah, make it fit in. And I think what we've found, um, we've done a number of projects that have been more sort of talent focused in the past couple of years in, in Innovation Lab, knowing that talent is what it seems to be resonating most with younger audience members on these platforms, like particularly Instagram, Reels and and TikTok. It's it's less about brands and it's more about an individual. So, you know, influencers is is one way of putting it. We we say more it's about creators. And by investing more in in those particular creators and creators that are in niches as well. So for instance, we've, you know, outside of the news area, because ABC's, you know, broadly entertainment information news um, we've had a, a tiktok creator who's very focused on art history another one just um focusing on sourdough baking um, another on gaming health they're topics that we cover anyway so they're topics that we can authentically own on that that platform um, and what we can do by you know investing in that talent having them on that platform build an audience for them and for us but then these creators have specific knowledge as well which we can bring on platform as well so which one do we want to commission for a podcast which one should get a regular segment on you know a news tv breakfast program or a radio program like how do you help then give the creators a portfolio kind of career across your media organization because i guess that's that's the place to discover new talent now. And um, and the pipeline for radio and TV doesn't quite fit that. So that's why we started looking more for digital opportunities um, for people who don't traditionally want to go through the, rank, the ranks of being a breakfast presenter, being an all-nighter <laughs> producer, like, you know, those jobs that tend to be the ones you have to work through the for classics.
0: years. The classics, yes. Yeah. And, and it's interesting you say that because – I think not too many years ago, 5, 10, 15 years ago, when they would start bringing in like a YouTube celebrity onto like a reality show or something like that, there was always this sort of like slight disdain for this YouTube celebrity, whoever they were, as opposed to the reality TV star that was also there, who was not exactly, you know, hadn't been out doing, you know, rounds of uh Shakespeare or very serious <laughs> drama either yeah. uh, on you know, to earn their chops so to speak uh, are we in a place now with those so-called influencers creators actually the playing field is more level now for them to go into you know for the, that kind of cross-breeding if you will between traditional media and and I, New media.
1: Yeah, I think there is still that disdain, probably from both sides oh, though. Yeah, from both sides. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, so I don't know. Have we moved on? Maybe not. But there's um, there's certainly the ability to kind of go both ways, as in how can traditional talent learn to use, you know, TikTok, Instagram, be authentic in, in those formats. But how can it, yeah, go the other way as well? I think yeah you know, it's prob- it's probably not unlike i'm slightly imagining this you know the days of early days of of tv when radio was there that you know one format always looks at another with you know looks down their nose and says well that's not quite as good as as my format um but they're doing different jobs for different people and and they all deserve respect
0: mm, indeed part of this then must be again about having people in the production team in the newsroom who actually don't look down their noses at these people that they're bringing in. They're actually suggesting them because they follow them or they like them. The way any producer would suggest a guest uh, because of story totally. that they, they follow. I, I, I remember in, in, in the newsroom I was working before um, coming here that those young voices at the beginning had a lot of challenges or obstacles to be heard when they'd start saying in the editorial meeting, oh, we heard I saw something on on Twitter, this storm brewing between two former footballer wives or uh, something that they wanted to bring up. Uh, It was immediately shut down by the serious news police, if you will, saying, no, 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 that's not news. You know, very quickly, that's not news. But even what is news in a way is changing because of that, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's so true, and I think that it's still the case now that um, th- there are plenty of younger voices that probably aren't being heard, um, and it's not that it's one or the other; it, it's both. Like I think I've got plenty of examples of where we've brought in a, a younger creator, um, and they learn so much from being part of the ABC, from having sort of the mentorship of, of older, not just older but more experienced editors. Um, and again, it kind of needs to go both ways. But if and I suppose this is for any sort of commissioning editors or, or sort of senior news people listening, if you don't genuinely believe in the value of the platform, um, then you're not going to you're not going to make it there, I think. And, and if you want to kind of write off any of these platforms, and for instance, TikTok, I certainly had people a couple of years ago say, oh, what's our role there? It's just, you know, people doing dancing videos. And if we as the ABC had gone there to do dancing videos, that would not have been authentically what we were about. But if we instead go there as we have seeing that this is short form video, this is personalised, this is, you know, giving um, a voice to anybody who's able to get up and create entertaining content, what's our place there? That's a sort of different way to look at the platform. And I think that what we've seen, again, just in TikTok in the last year or so in particular, is people who are well-respected for their um, their specific area of expertise. Um, so that could be in news. You know, for us, we've had an art history TikToker iconoclast who had sort of half a million followers, was doing a master's in Cambridge, but actually a, a woman from Melbourne We commissioned her to do a a 20 by one minute art history series in Australia. So I guess from that news perspective as well, how do you give a voice to the people who have a a nose for the story, who know the audience, who realise that it's a platform that's attracting huge numbers of audience members? So unless you want to dismiss that massive chunk of potential audience, you shouldn't dismiss the platform either.
0: Now we've been talking about all of these innovations that you've been looking into, all these these different uh, approaches, and along with that comes AI and apps like Chat GPT. Um, Have you been working with that at all uh, to see how it can be, you know, kind of used or, or? utilised for uh, programming.
1: It's become such a massive topic of interest lately, hasn't it, for a really general audience since ChatGPT came out? Yeah, I I mean, it's personally of interest to me because it's where machines and humans come together. And you could say that about, you know, everything from social platforms through to the web to podcasting. It's where the content and the machines can come together is a really interesting space. And I think machine learning is, you know, such a complex version of that. Um, Yeah, over the past year I've been looking into how we could apply AI at the ABC Um, and this started sort of earlier last year with just doing some research into what was happening around the world in in media, you know, who was using ML, machine learning for uh, everything from recommendations through to transcription, translation, some of those more practical Areas of, of AI application. Um, and we started doing some work before the hype of ChatGPT and DALI um, had come about. And this really helped us to sort of step through what does it mean to bring journalists and machine learning engineers together? Um, one of the pilots we did last year was part of the London School of Economics Journalism AI Fellowship, which brings together engineers and, and journalists. And uh, Gina McEwen, who's the innovation editor in my team, along with our machine learning engineer at the ABC, Gareth Sinek, were part of this fellowship and they joined up with a Spanish startup called Neutral to develop a fact-checking tool. Um, and we're soon to pilot that in the newsroom. But what I found really interesting and what I learned from from their involvement in the fellowship was all the steps we had to take along the way to be able to trust using these tools in the newsroom so for instance um, always having a human in the loop like there is no set and forget with AI um, or machine learning tools they're they're always learning. So you need a human to be always training it. And the humans with expertise in this um, instance are journalists in the newsroom. So that meant that when training this tool to be able to sort of spot um, false claims from politicians, we got a political journal to do the data tagging. So we'd sort of thought, oh, can we get a media student to do this? It seems like a, a sort of a, a low-level task where we need to just tag data. That's a bit bit boring. Uh, but if we want to be able to interrogate this algorithm in years to come, we want to be able to say this data has the same sort of robust, uh, you know, it was built with the same robust knowledge as a political reporter, the same knowledge of our editorial policies as, an, as, a, as a reporter. Um, and we also sort of learnt that along the way, We needed to be able to document the training of this tool in order to be able to interrogate it down the track as well. So it's not going to be good enough if, you know, in a few years' time we've been using a tool, it spits out a certain result, we keep using it, and we don't know how it got there. So we need to be able to reverse engineer results that are being spun out by, um, by AI tools, which is I think part of why ChatGPT has got so many journalists you know, up in arms because it's not <laughs> spitting out factual information a lot of the time. Um, I don't particularly care that it's not spitting out factual information because humans don't spit out factual information. Like if you read a thousand books and you recite something to me, you might get some bits wrong. But the the what is so kind of magical about ChatGPT, about image generation tools like MidJourney and Dali is how – how well it compares to a sentence written by a human or how well it compares to um, an artwork that's been painted by an actual human. You might know of the the story of, uh, I can't remember the artist, the artist, I use an inverted commas name, but he won the digital category of the Colorado State Fair with an artwork that was created putting text prompts into <laughs> Dali and it looks, it's stunning. It's a stunning piece right. of art. And and I think that what's important to remember is this idea of a human in the loop, that the, the guy who won the competition, he had to come up with the text prompt. He had to have a vision for what he wanted and he kept putting in a text prompt to create this artwork. And then he also knew when to say stop, like that's good enough, I want that one. So a human either end of the machine and the machine as a tool is I think where it will be going for us, um, and you know, with Microsoft having such a big investment in um, in this technology, you know, it is, and they've announced it now. It'll be turning up in programs that we use every day. And once again, it's a tool. It's a tool for us. So how do we use it? How do we how do we make it? Um, you know, shorten the time that we take to do a certain task. How do we? Use it in ways that works for us in the media, and not be sort of scared by by the the falseness of of what it could be. It's not news gathering,
0: right? <laughs> yes, it's not news gathering, but it can certainly help you get there. And, and as you say, one of the things that's most impressive is the sentence structure of some of these uh, apps, like Chat GPT. I've I've tried testing it and, and found some things you could you could query and as you say same goes with humans but the sentence structure the grammar mm. is spot on
1: and i I've, I've been playing with it um, just as a sounding board you know if i'm trying to write a document and i'm getting a bit stuck on it can you please rewrite this sentence i don't say please to chatgpt i'm saying right. that cuz i'm sitting here with you humans <laughs>
0: Right. Okay. Well, one last question for you. And it's kind of the crystal ball question that, you know, we get asked, we we hear every time we meet with uh, members uh, here at the EBU and at news committees, uh, you know, there's a sense of doom and gloom sometimes about where we're all heading in the news media, in the media, in general, public service media. Do you feel that way?
1: Not at all. I think I I wouldn't be working in innovation for public service media if I felt doom and gloom about the future. Um I think that we can be this probably goes for any business. We can be our own worst enemy because we're working on the problems they're front of mind. But I sometimes try to take the perspective of somebody outside looking in and and it goes to that thing of our, our all of the all of the things that are our, you know, unique value proposition and it's it's everything from our legacy, our trusted reputation, um, the thousands of humans we have working for us who know the industry kind of in and out. These are things that our competitors, whether it's streaming giants or, you know, tech companies, they don't have. We've got something different to them. How do we leverage the thing that is different? And how do we think about what the audience really needs from us? And and the challenge will be changing from what we've been in that one message for all. What, what was the phrase you used earlier? Least objectionable least programming. Object, yeah, we need to get away from least objectionable programming to being the absolute best programming for that particular audience segment. Because I think if you do something really well for a targeted audience it'll probably resonate with a much broader audience, but you have to start with being kind of targeted. And yeah, there's no sort of shortage of genres, topics, types of storytelling that that we can do in the media and the machines aren't going to do that.
0: Angela Stengel, head of ABC's innovation team uh, in Australia, thanks for joining us. And I'd also like to say... Welcome aboard to ABC, which has just recently joined the EBU as one of our uh, news exchange partners.
1: Um, and so fantastic to yeah join you on this podcast and be here in Geneva with so many brains who are just doing some fantastic work in, in media.
0: you've been listening to the Eurovision News Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to hear more from us, please consider subscribing, giving us a five-star review, and telling a friend about us. Thank you.